We're going to begin a series of sermons today that kind of tries to answer the question that is in a lot of people's minds as they make judgments, both those from within the church and those from without the church. That question is, who really is a Christian? You would think that that's a fairly simple question to answer, and membership roles are filled with names of people who are supposed to be Christians in churches across this land. But really, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about membership roles here. We're here to talk about who's a Christian from the perspective of the Scripture. We're looking at what biblical Christianity looks like in the Bible and what it has to say about it. We're going to use a book as a background that's going to be a little bit of a strange take for you, for us to, for me, really, to select this book for us to use. It is a book called... Uh, the 19 Questions to Kindle a Wesleyan Spirit. It's written by a lady named Evelyn Moore, and I meant to bring my copy up here, but I left it on my desk. It's a red and orange book, and it's, if you go online or maybe on the screen, I'm not sure where Lauren's going to have it, but certainly online uh, at the church, it'll tell you where you can order a copy if you would like. You're thinking, 19 questions? Is that a long sermon series? And the answer to that would be, yes, it is. <laughs> but fortunately, it's like a a lot of course, uh, several course meals. You don't have to eat it all at once, right? We're going to take it bite by bite. We're going to start with this because these 19 questions are not just 19 questions that she's dreamed up. These 19 questions that she talks about kindling a Wesleyan spirit have since the 1700s been the questions that ordained United Methodist clergy have answered before they were ordained. Now you might say, well, we don't really need to answer the same questions as the preachers, do we? And the answer is that, yes, you do. Because we're all on the same spiritual journey. There'll be a few questions that at first may not seem like they apply to you, but before I'm through with them, they will. And so whenever we think about these questions, we need to realize, and I'm asking you to seriously consider this, that the right kind of questions can change a person's perspective, a person's worldview. The right kind of questions like these developed by John Wesley himself to probe the hearts and the motives of potential Methodist preachers as she writes in her book. Since the 1700s, as I've already said, pastors in United Methodist Church's tradition have answered these 19 historical questions as a way of agreeing to how we will live into this ministry life. But it's also the foundation for how we live as a Christian. It is the beginning point of our connection as we join together to say we all have said yes to these questions. Now when I say that, I am aware that sometimes these 19 questions are treated not with all the respect they deserve. I'm also aware that there are stories, including in this book, of people who go to their ordination and because some questions are too hard for them to understand or to say yes to, they actually cross their fingers in their mind or actually cross their fingers under their robe. They think the questions are outdated or that they are irrelevant to current Christian living. That is a shame. And it's a shame that they have not realized the power of these traditions. Wesley asked these candidates whether they were resolved, 
whether they were earnest, whether they were would study and be diligent in instructing others. And in the end, he asked them, do not mend our rules. In other words, do not change them. But keep them. Not for wrath's sake, but for conscience' sake. Yes, ask them because we, I believe, like Miss Moore believes, that Wesley's motives was surely to produce men and women of God who were attempting to grow up in every way into Christ who is our head. Isn't that what every Christian is meant to be doing? To grow up into the fullness of Christ? To grow up into the headship of Christ? Aren't these questions worth asking to every United Methodist person? I believe they are. The first one is not first by accident. And I can tell you when you're asked this question, standing before a building filled with people, and this is your life that you've been studying toward and pointing toward for a long time. This is your sole intention to be able to answer these questions with a heart that is leaning into them. So when he says, have you faith in Christ? It seems like too bold a statement to ask a group of people who have already been studying and preparing to go into ministry, doesn't it? But every year it's asked, have you faith in Christ? And the answer is always yes. And sometimes if it's not resounding enough, the bishop will ask it again. Have you faith in Christ? Because you see, that is the foundation of the all that we as Christians believe and do. Have we faith in Christ? Those are two parts of that question that we're going to look at today. It is the foundation for who we are and for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you today to do two things. One is have your heart open to answer this question again. It's a present tense question. It's not a question about some statement you made a long time ago. It's a question about whether you have faith in Christ today. You say, well, of course I do. I'm sitting here. And I say to you, do you have faith in Christ? I promise you, if you do, you are a challenge to the culture in which we live. Because faith in Christ is different from faith in culture. Different from faith in other gods. Different from faith that looks like it is Christ, but it's really not. It is the faith of the scriptures. The faith of a particular way of living. Or as Joshua already read, the way and the truth and the life is who Jesus is. And if we are really following Christ, we are living lives the way Jesus lived his. If we are really following Christ, our motives are the same as Christ. And you say, well, preacher, that's just not possible. Well, yes, it is. It is possible. And it is, it should be, and it should be the goal of every Christian. That's Wesleyan belief what the scriptures teach. I'm aware that there are others who teach you with a different slant. But that is not how we teach it in the United Methodist Church. Best understand faith, let's talk about how Wesley said what faith is not. I'm not taking this from her book, I'm taking it by a book called John Wesley's Teachings by Thomas C. Oden, Volume 2. 
In this book, he lists them in everyday language, what Wesley said in non-everyday language. First of all, he said, faith, saving faith is not general faith of moral virtue in, mater in material, natural and material humanity. It is not faith present in natural humans' moral consciousness. You don't get to heaven and to a life of eternity with Jesus by being a good moral person of virtue. You can't be so good that when the time comes for you to die, people just look at you and say, well, he didn't really claim Jesus as his savior. He didn't really believe in Jesus, but I'm sure he's going to heaven because after all, he's a good man and Jesus is a good, is a good God. All the question of that is that probably is true. He probably was a good man virtually and morally. But let's be clear, even though the father is a good man too, he has a strict set of rules. There's one way, one truth, and one life, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Period. Period. Being a good person won't cut it. So many times we try to go to heaven by being a good person, and we work so diligently just to be good. There's nothing wrong with working to be good, but goodness is not how you arrive on the footsteps and into the entry hall of the halls of heaven. For that place has been reserved for those who believe. It is not a place reserved for people who just believe in any kind of way. Saving faith is not a faith that's natural to humanity and just good people just seem to have it. No, they don't. They may, have good, they may have good morals. They may have good intentions. They may have good thoughts or even intellectual belief about that Jesus was really real. But that's not saving faith. And you say, how long are you going to beat on this horse? Oh, about another 15 minutes. Because it is the most important question, question in the world, not just for us, but for all the people living around us who don't know this. And they'll never know it unless someone who does know it starts warning and then praying for their souls. Because you see, they're not going to come by naturally. Saving faith is not for those who unbelievingly know Jesus as Christ, but not knowing Christ as Lord. Now, that is kind of the faith of the devils in Western's language. Because, you see, even the devils knew that Jesus was God's Son. Even though they knew that intellectually, that is not saving faith. Saving faith is not a matter of intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. You say, yeah, but we were taught to ask somebody, do you believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart? Yes, you were. But saving faith is more than just knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. It is believing with your whole life that Jesus is the Son of God. It is an orientation that's completely different from the world. It is something set apart. It is the narrow way. It is the way that people do inherit this place that Jesus created for them. It is a way of living the Christian life that has power and impact. And my faith voice were stronger, if my legs were stronger, I'd be right down in your face now, all over the building. You say, why? 
Because I want to be sure that, that you are not expecting to be good or to go to church and get to heaven. Because it doesn't work. It's going to make me very sad when I'm sitting on heaven's doors and the people are walking by and I start comparing the road who's not there with the road who is there. Some of the people that I've preached to for years are not there. I'm going to feel personally responsible because I did not make it clear to them that there's only one way to heaven. And so I want to make that perfectly clear for you today. Faith is also not faith based upon speculation that is rational or empirical inquiry. We can't prove by facts that Jesus is the Son of God and you should believe in him. It is something that comes by grace through faith. It's like it talks about in Ephesians 2 and 8. You can't think your way into the goodness of God and get there. No, you have to open your heart to the grace of God that God is pouring out to you. You can't earn it. And neither can anyone else. Now, what is faith? Let's contrast what it is with what it is not. Faith enabled by grace is not Christianity. Let me say that again. Faith enabled by grace is not the foundation of Protestant Christianity or biblical faith. Grace is what enables faith. Grace is the foundation of all belief. Without grace, we would not believe. Without grace, we could not believe. Fortunately for us, God has poured out His grace universally. The witness of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. But they do have to have a heart that's open to receive it. They do have to be willing to let the grace work in their lives so that they have faith. You just can't believe your way into having faith without grace. Instead, you have to open yourself up and let God pour God's grace into you. That is the way you're justified, and that is the way you're sanctified. That is the way you're glorified when you leave this earth. It is the disposition of one's whole heart and mind and strength and will to receive grace joyfully. Now, here's the rub of Christians. We love loving Jesus. We love singing about how we love Jesus. But the rub is, not everyone loves getting up early on Saturday morning and going to do a witness and mission. Not everyone loves teaching junior high students. Thank God some people do. You know, not everyone enjoys teaching adults either. Because in large classes in Sunday school, people go to sleep on you just like they go to sleep on you when you're preaching. I started to ask you for this sermon series to turn your cell phones off, but then someone much younger than I am reminded me that some people take notes on their phones. Well, if your phones are on in these coming weeks, I hope they're on only to take notes, not to check your email. Because after all, we're already giving our whole heart to Jesus, right? We're already here because we've given our wills to Jesus, right? Now think about what that means. When you open the scriptures and read them, you have given your will to God already. So what the scriptures tell you to do when you understand them 
is what we do, right? Yeah, I know. That's pretty quiet, isn't it? It's pretty quiet. You say, well, but I, I, I'm trying to do that. Well, okay, I, that's all any of us can do, if you really are. If you're really trying with all that you are, that's all you can do and all God asks. You say, well, it sounds like you're asking more. No. I'm only asking that you put your whole self into it. Because if you put your whole self into it, I know that you're saved. And I also know that the sanctifying work of God's grace in you will transform you continually until you die. It won't get through with you. You won't quit reading the scriptures. You won't quit serving. You won't quit finding a way to join the church, no matter how old and decrepit your body becomes. And I've experienced some of that, and I don't like it. In fact, while I was off, supposed to be studying and working on the church's plan, I spent about those six weeks and a couple before it, sleeping about one to three hours a night, in segments of about 30 minutes at a time. I did that for about eight weeks. I didn't really know you could do that without somebody getting hurt. And Sally probably thought a few times she was in danger. Because then it kept going on and on and we couldn't find the right concoction of medicine and things to quiet the pain in my back. Uh, root blocks didn't completely do it, although it's helped it greatly. I'm thankful for that. But it just continues on. I've been having trouble sleeping. I'm not for sure why that is, but I had a lot of time to think while I was not asleep and I was wandering around talking to God about my situation. And I began to realize in the midst of all that, Hey, you're not special. People have a lot more pain than you have every day of their life when they're living through it. So I think, okay, then I'll go in and go to sleep. I can sleep with this pain. And I go in and go to sleep. And there this way, I was up again and wandering around the house. Woe is me. Poor Doug. Here he is. He can't do what he used to could do. Sally's having to wait on him a whole lot. I really don't like that. Well, sometimes I kind of enjoy it, but for the most part, I know what she's going to demand later when I get better. That worries me. I'll be in debt for the rest of my life. It is a disposition of the whole heart, mind, and strength, and will to receive grace joyfully. That's the sanctifying grace of God that continues to work on us, and we continue to respond to it. We don't get so grown up in Christ that we're casual about worship or casual about study or casual about the time. But rather, we believe in its full biblical sense. It's not only assent to the gospel of Christ, but it's trust in the merits of this life, death, and resurrection of the man called Jesus. We trust that. We trust that that is the way, the truth, and the life, just like John, just like Jesus said to those disciples when he's about to go away. And they whined and said, we don't get it. We don't understand. And he says, I've been with you all this time. Don't you know when you see me, you see the Father? As he continues on in the scriptures. He chastised them pretty strongly, but they had not yet had the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out as you have had. It was harder for them to understand because Jesus had not yet died and the Holy Spirit had not been loosed. 
But now that's all been rectified. Christ has died and risen and the Holy Spirit has been loose for years and years and years and you have received the touch of that Holy Spirit. And that presence of God is with us continually. When we start examining our lives and our yeses and our noes to our situations in life, the fullness of Christ should shine brightly. And we as mature Christians should be saying yes a lot more than we're saying no. And we should be saying no a lot of times when we're saying yes to the culture, to our vocations, to everything around us that tempts us to follow a way rather than the way. That is the witness of the Christians in this earth. The last part is the short part. You have faith, the kind of faith that is biblical, that is in Christ. Now I'm going to get personal about Methodism. A little bit. Because I know there are a lot of Christian believers in the United Methodist Church who struggle with this path. The singularity of it. They want to believe that every good person who's trying to follow God with some kind of witness, even those who are following other religions that have been witnessed to about Jesus Christ, are going to make it. That God is very generous with his love, so generous that people's little bitty efforts are enough. Well, that's just not the fullness of the gospel story. That's making everybody feel better, and I've been guilty of it too. I stood behind the pulpit at times, and I think I've held the reins in. I think that people would say that was too hard. In fact, I've had preachers tell me, well, people aren't going to do that. They're not going to strive trying to be perfect. Okay. The way is born for those people who won't do it. And it's a road to death. I tell you that out of love. I tell you that as gently as I know how to tell you that, but you need to understand it. Because the way of following Christ, as he told those first disciples, you have to lose your life in order to save it. And that's hard to do, I know. Only the grace of God can do it in you. You can't work so hard to try and do it. So please don't go out of here and sign up for everything in the neighborhood and across town in any church. <laughs> I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to try to work your way into that kind of knowledge. I'm trying to ask you to pray your way with an open heart to allow God to put in the grace into you that you joyfully receive to live the way that God lives. That's what I'm asking you to do. You say, well, that sounds hard. That sounds costly. That sounds like some people may not understand. Yes. It's all those things. But I'm telling you, today, from this day, mark it down, that that is a faith that is saving faith. You may be sitting here today saying, man, I never did that with such serious business going to church. Going to church is something we joyfully do. The serious business is deciding to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Not just your Savior, but as your Lord as well. When we get to that point where we're being fully saved and the grace of God is free to come in 
our lives and to change us and transform us into the witness of the people we need to be. I remember at my ordination. I thought about it a lot. I remember those hours I was wandering around. I thought about a lot of things. Now I have to go down the stairs with Drell. Probably before this is over, before I leave sometimes, I'm going to trip right in front of you. Even though I prayed God not to let that happen. It's not a pretty sight when a guy my size falls. I've been doing it a little regularly, and so I've been trying to be more careful. I want you to know if that happens, and so far, I haven't used part of my lives. My, my nurse daughter tells me, she says, you must have nine lives. You keep falling, nothing to get broken. No, just bruised and beat up. But that's all right. That just hurts my pride. Now, I ask you today as you sit here to think about that question. When I met before an altar like this and a church like this, in the full presence of the church there to bless us and to ordain us, and I basically his hands on me, it was after he had asked us the question. The first one being, do you have faith in Christ today, this moment, that is alive and growing? Yes, I know there are times in our life when we get overwhelmed with life's responsibility and we backslide. We backslide and allow the things of this earth to overthink and take the things of eternity. I understand that. That's why I'm asking you today. You have faith in Christ today. If it's waned, if your spirit has kind of grown dull, if your excitement about getting up and coming to the church to worship is not what it used to be, if you think of the world as a lost cause, or maybe you, if you're here today and you've never really accepted Christ as your Lord, you more than willingly accept him as your Savior, but you've not really accepted him as your Lord. If any of those things are true, altar is the place for you. And God is here to welcome you, to pour out his grace into you, to restore you and put you back on the right path. Do you need to come? If you do, come now. It's a powerful place to be. In Christ's name.